Hi, I'm Talia Baroncelli, and you're watching the analysis.news. I'll shortly be joined by Peter Carter to speak about climate change, as well as the military's role in exacerbating the climate crisis. But first, please do go to our website, theanalysis.news, and hit the donate button at the top right corner of the screen. You can also sign up to our newsletter. That way you'll be informed of all of our future updates and shows. Back in a bit. Joining me now is Peter Carter. He's a retired physician and founder of the Climate Emergency Institute. Peter has worked intensely on reports on climate change over the years and also served as an expert reviewer for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, including on their working assessment in 2014 and on their special report in 2018. So I'm very happy to have you here, Peter. Thank you. Thank you. It's always, a, it's always a, a, a pleasure and a good opportunity. Thank you. We've just passed the one-year mark of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, so it would be a good opportunity to actually speak about how the military and how ongoing conflicts contribute to climate change. Well, I think firstly, um, um, I'm, I'm following this war because um, uh, for most of my life I've been interested in involved one way or another in, in, in uh, disarmament and peace. So the outbreak of this war was um, um, really a, a horrible shock to me. Um, uh, and uh, it's just got more and more shocking, right? As you say, um, incredibly, this war is now uh, one year long. Um, uh, um, it is in the words of the RAND Corporation, and they should know, this is one of the most bloodiest wars in history. Um, uh, as you know, it's degenerated into a uh, World War One-type trench war, and as well as, of course, uh, you know, um, the most modern, horrible, heavy weapons um, being used in this. Um, Ukraine is a large country in in, in the middle of Europe. Um, but there's another reason for me to be interested in in this, and more than a little alarmed, because um, we are. Um, we are not only at the brink, we're beyond the brink um, with regards to our global emissions, CO2 emissions, of course, primarily from burning fossil fuels, and not being able to avoid in the near future, in a few decades, catastrophic climate change by surpassing the catastrophic limit of uh, 2 degrees C global average temperature. So the IPCC in their last assessment um, repeatedly um, said that to avoid 1.5 degrees C, which is now too late, and to avoid 2 degrees C, emissions have to decline immediately. They repeated this over and over and on a rapid basis. So um, there could be nothing worse um, for our climate security and for our climate future and being able to avoid ca uh, climate catastrophe uh, than a hot war. Um, these, um, the war um, is, of course, being fought with fossil fuels. Um, uh, the amount that the military burns in the way of fossil fuels is absolutely unbelievable. Um, uh, I think many people have heard that the uh, United States military as an institution, if you like, is the single largest uh, source of uh, CO2 emissions. 
and you can add in tanks and howitzers and everything like that. But that's compounded by the fact that we have to have unprecedented international cooperation in order to put global emissions into immediate decline. And the war has absolutely uh, scuppered, uh, ruled out, made completely impossible that type of cooperation. Because we have uh, the large emitters, we have China, we have the Russian Federation, and we have the United States in very unfriendly international relationships. So, and the armaments industry, of course, has always been a big driver of warfare, um, uh, as well as the big global banks. Um, uh, in this sense, uh, warfare is at the same time the worst and the best of businesses. Because, of course, the um, uh, Rayathon and, and uh, Northrop and companies like that in the United States are making uh, vast, vast profits now. And they continue to make vast profits because, as you may have heard, um, uh, Ukraine is running out of ammunition. And we're talking heavy ammunition. We're talking big stuff. And um, uh, the uh, United States um, uh, uh, weapons armaments producers are ramping up their production of these uh, shells. It's absolutely terrible. I mean, it is completely insane. It's despicable. Um, uh, it, it, it is shocking to see all of these once beautiful towns and cities in the country of Ukraine being absolutely demolished. And the longer, of course, this situation continues and the more damage is being done, the less likely it is for us to have this international cooperation. Right. Well, you mentioned the military and um, that report by Professor uh, Netta Crawford from Brown University in which she illustrated how the, the U.S. Department of Defense is the largest institutional consumer of fossil fuels in the world. And just yeah. by looking at um, how the United States and how Europe as well um sort of write their climate change commitments and their commitments to achieving net zero emissions by 2050, they often don't include those military emissions in their commitments. And so I wonder, I mean, without in including those huge numbers and, and the fact that the military, I mean, the U.S. military emits more than, I think, Portugal and Sweden together or something insane like that. Yeah. So how can we even meet those commitments without addressing the role of the military in uh, greenhouse gas emissions? Well, the fact is, and the IPCC, of course, has been reporting um, and telling us this for many years, um, our, our, our sort of buzzword target is now net zero. Um, but the IPCC is very clear that net zero requires zero fossil fuels. So the fossil fuel industry um, has to uh, come to a close. And it has to come to a close very quickly. And of course it can do, because we've also known for years and years and years that all of our fossil fuel energy, uh, polluting planet future destroying fossil fuel energy, um, energy can be replaced 100% by uh, this amazing, you know, um, uh, clean, uh, zero carbon, non-combustion energy. Um, 
But the war also um, reminds me, some, uh, certainly, that at the background of uh, driving uh, emissions, global emissions, emissions are, of course, at an all-time high again. Not only that, emissions are increasing at an all-time high rate. So uh, we couldn't be in a worse situation as regards uh, what we're doing with our climate and our planet. And we couldn't be in a worse situation with regards to, um, um, I mean, this war is, uh, it, frankly, it's pretty obvious it's being encouraged, it's being pushed, right? Um, uh, this is now seen as an insane competition between the United States and NATO, yes, and, and the Russian Federation. And of course, you know, people are, are getting worried and very reasonably worried about the uh, nuclear threat yet again, because uh, both of these countries um, have uh, large numbers of nuclear weapons, much less than they had um, 30, 40 years ago, but certainly enough to do our planet in. And um, of course, the latest bad news is that um, uh, uh, President Putin has said he's withdrawing um, from the nuclear weapons uh, control treaty, which had been actually uh, operating up to now. Um, uh, um, so we really do have a risk of uh, world-ending nuclear war, but we have a certain, certain future of uh, world-destroying climate catastrophe if the war continues and we don't achieve peace and therefore we don't have the cooperation necessary to put emissions into rapid decline. Well, a few months ago, we saw world leaders meet at the UN Climate Change Conference, COP27, in Egypt. And my impression was that they were just patting themselves on the back for having all sorts of innovative uh, strategies to combat climate change. But I think they were overstating how innovative or successful these strategies are. I mean, you heard Biden saying that by 2030, they'd be able to reduce emissions by 40%, given what they've done with the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, do you buy that? You're, 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 you're totally right. The ideas and the proposals that the international community puts out, they're good. And also proposals that civil society um, uh, puts out, um, but they are minuscule and have zero effect all the time we are emitting um, at all, at all. So um, yes, it's all very nice, but I think it's rather time-wasting. I mean, I, I just can't believe how these conferences go on every year. They last for two weeks, and then they sort of go into overtime, and they achieve absolutely nothing uh, apart from a new buzzword, right? So we've had uh, roadmaps and um, We've had pathways, and we've had uh, we've had action years, and it, it just goes on and on. And um, uh, you know, uh, one of the media made a comment that um, the uh, activity at COP twenty seven appeared to be more in the way of making deals with respect to primarily fossil fuel energy, um, rather than making deals to put emissions in into decline. Um, uh, there's um, there's absolutely no political will um, to do what has to be done. The science is absolutely definite that what has to be done for us to have a future 
at all. The IPCC 6 assessment, um, uh, once again, was a brilliant assessment, um, but I don't think the world's got the message. Um, uh, they use terms like, uh, we now have to secure a livable future. Uh, when the IPCC, the highly conservative intergovernmental panel on climate change, is using that kind of language, you know that we're in dire, dire trouble, um, which we are. So, um, yeah, they, um, they're, they're unbelievable time wasters. And, um, uh, you know, they can talk about net zero and, um, uh, well, and they can talk about net zero forever, frankly. But it means nothing without putting fossil fuel emissions to zero. And the IPCC has been definite on that for many years now. Um, uh, so a lot of this is avoiding uh, what governments must do, um, not only in the light of Paris Agreement, but also to comply with the 1992 United Nations Climate Change Convention. Um, uh, um, not to mention their uh, moral, ethical, and governing responsibility um, to provide today's young people in the future um, with a livable future. They are going to live through terrible times. It's too late for us to avoid that now. The other thing that they talk about a lot is 1.5 degrees C. So we've heard since the very excellent 2018 IPCC 1.5 degrees C report, um, we've heard that uh, global emissions have to be cut to uh, 50% um, in, in 10 or so years, and we have to reach net zero by 2050. That, by the way, is the longest that the scientists think we might wait to get net zero. So the institutions and organizations that say we have to get to net zero well before 2050 are, um, are absolutely right, and, and they're right by the science. Uh, 1.5 degrees C is um, we cannot possibly uh, limit to 1.5 degrees C. That should be obvious pretty well to anybody that's been following what the climate change and the global temperatures have been doing. And um, pretending that we can limit to 1.5 degrees C um, is really, really, really unbelievably irresponsible. Um, uh, it, it's sort of, um, I guess people call it hopium. No, what we have to do is to, uh, is to um, get together on the disastrous future that we have with 1.5 degrees C, it's globally disastrous. And uh, according to the IPCC, we will be there around um, 2032. That's no time ahead. So the years that we have, governments should be preparing the world to withstand the uh, 1.5 degrees C disasters. And here they are. Instead of doing that, they're, um, uh, frankly, they're making war. And um, another thing that we could discuss is that um, we've never left the war economy. Eisenhower was so right. Um, since the huge ramp up of the world economy, particularly the United States and also European nations subsequently, after the Brentwood uh, Agreement, uh, Bretton Woods Agreement, 
um, uh, uh, we have stayed on basically a war-based economy, right? And we're now seeing um, how all of these countries, you know, have these awful weapons, they're all weapons of mass destruction in my view, and um, they're all coming out of the woodwork now. Um, so yeah, there is a economy and a consciousness of, of war and the paranoia of war that is driving the um, production of increasing amounts of fossil fuels and um, planning on continuing to have more fossil fuels. So we have to make the peace. But just to be clear, going back to what you were saying with 1.5 degree warming, I mean, this is something that's not reversible at this stage, right? Like we're definitely going to make 1.5 degree Celsius of global warming. The question is whether we can stop it hitting two degrees Celsius. And then what happens after that? Is is two degrees a tipping point that then leads to further disasters and... and well, yeah, we, we, I tell you, we, we, the international community has always realized that two degrees C is, is a sort of end of the world limit. Um, uh, um, two degrees C was um, first proposed in the mid-1990s by the EU. Um, uh, it became sort of formalized um, uh, at, the, um, uh, at the Copenhagen Agreement, um, uh, uh, in fact, the Copenhagen COP. Um, uh, back in uh, 2009 or whenever the heck that was um but that's where where two degrees started and in actual fact where governments responded to the uh, most vulnerable and least developed nations you know africa and the others um uh, that they would they said they would look at 1.5 degrees c so they'd been looking at 1.5 degrees for years and years and years um, then the IPCC was persuaded to do a 1.5 degree C report and everybody was shocked, absolutely shocked at how disastrous 1.5 degree C is. Um, uh, two degree C is, is, is the end of our world. And the research that's been going on and on has, um, has shocked scientists because it is far worse and the tipping points, as you mentioned, are far closer um, uh, than really the models had ever projected. So recently we've had several um, actually really good papers in so much as they're hopefully very, very useful to drive the lackluster, uh, totally irresponsible political will um, uh, that we see. Um, uh, we we have to look after today's children, right? Uh, we have to look after today's young people. Um, uh, that should be the focus. Focus should not be on war, and the focus should not be on economic benefits. The focus should be on humanity, which is our children and our young people. And uh, their appeals, by the way, even legal appeals, have been fought by their own governments. And their appeals have been completely rejected. And so we see emissions, all emissions at record levels, increasing at record rates. And also, we are now in, the scientists have again been very shocked and confirmed it, 
that we're now in the worst nightmare situation um, uh, that environmentalists like myself have been around at least some time um, uh, ever imagined because we've now into methane feedback. Um, uh, and that really is again an end of the world situation if governments don't put emissions into decline right away. Um, I mean, Hossein Lee, who is the chair of the IPCC um, uh, in the uh, Madrid COP, which is two COPs ago, um, uh, I was at that one. And um, uh, at the formal opening plenary, uh, Dr. Lee stated quite definitely that to avoid 1.5 degrees C, emissions have to be put into immediate and rapid decline. And he said the same thing the year later um, uh, at the um, uh, um, Glasgow COP. But this time he said that in order to avoid uh, 1.5 degrees C and 2 degrees C, we have to put emissions into immediate and rapid decline. The media um, are not putting this out. Um, they have been irresponsible and most unhelpful on that because there's never been a more important scientific statement than that. Um, uh, so it, 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 it really isn't out there. Um, and uh, the wall, you know, the atmosphere and the media attention and, and the fears and worries of everybody completely uh, um, uh, removes the um, uh, planet-destroying situation of our accelerating greenhouse gas emissions with the warming wetlands around the world, tropical wetlands and northern wetlands, because they've been warming up for years and years and years, and they normally emit some methane, they are now emitting more methane. And atmospheric methane has literally exploded. Literally, in the past few years, it has exploded. Um, uh, and um, the scientists are doing very good work on this. They're confirming that it is methane. They're confirming where the methane is coming from. Um, uh, but of course, in the international situation that we're in, I don't think anybody's listening to them. Well, methane is one of the most potent greenhouse gases, right? And we just saw um, in September, we saw the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines, which was a methane explosion, which, you know, it released so much methane into the Baltic Sea um, by, you know, the sabotage of this pipeline. And uh, we, we could, you know, discuss... Who is responsible for that or who is behind that? I mean, Seymour Hirsch has his theory and highly likely. It's, I don't know. It, it's another, it's, 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 it's another um, shocking evidence of um, international insanity, right? I mean, whoever blew up the pipeline, I mean, that is completely, they're completely out of their minds, right? Um, uh, um, it settled down, of course, but we have um, excellent satellites now. Uh, particularly Europe, by the way, a Copernicus program, but NASA, of course, has excellent satellites too. And so they can now actually pinpoint where methane is coming from. And of course, from uh, the, because uh, we saw all the, that massive amount bubbling on the surface of the sea there. So that was the largest single plume um, uh, that's ever been recorded. But we have plumes all over the planet because we're fracking, 
uh, we're fracking the planet for natural gas and oil and um, uh, coal emits methane. Oh, so we have methane emissions from all three um, uh, green, uh, all three fossil fuels because natural gas is mainly methane. And of course, you know, we've got, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of pipelines and, and, uh, and stations that they use to uh, control the, uh, um, the methane, but it's large. Um, NASA actually uh, very recently published a map um, which showed um, in detail uh, fossil fuel methane emissions. And um, it's, of course, largely the northern hemisphere. Um, but um, the, um, the most focused concentrated amount of methane that's coming out is coming from the Russian European, European pipelines. It's really quite dramatic not the amount total, but the fine concentration emission, which the satellites can pick up. Um, it's very, very high indeed. And um, uh, so that's a big problem, huge problem with natural gas, because of course, um, all the countries thought that natural gas was a great thing. And so they're, they're fracking the uh, heck out of the planet, including where I live, I'm afraid in British Columbia, in our north, we have a, um, a huge so-called deposit of shale gas, which is being fracked. Well, big oil and big gas are huge proponents of certain techniques such as carbon capture and storage and sequestration, but they primarily engage in these different techniques in order to get more oil out of the ground or more, more gas out of the ground. Do you think that carbon capture and storage is a viable solution or a mechanism to reach certain climate goals? Well, um, CCS has been around for a very long time. The IPCC did a special report on carbon capture and storage. I think it was back in 2010. Um, uh, and, um, you know, we've had scientific research. And as you say, um, now um, uh, the um, fossil fuel industry is talking more and more carbon capture and storage. Um, you may remember that the uh, Secretary of State that President Trump chose um, at the time was the CEO of Exxon, um, Mr. Tillerson. And of course, when he was put through the vetting committee, he was asked whether he believed in climate change uh, because President Trump had said it was a hoax. Um, Tillerson said, yeah, we believe in climate change. Um, uh, it's a problem, uh, but it's an engineering problem. So that shows you, doesn't it? Um, right from the top, um, uh, they 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 don't believe. I mean, nobody can believe that you can solve climate change by anything. You know, carbon capture storage um, is the one that's been mentioned. But anything, all the time, we're emitting um, uh, forty gigatons of carbon dioxide a year year after year after year. It is uh, more than stupid. Um, you know, we forget the, um, uh, in our sort of scientific discussions particularly, mm -hmm. but also in our international relationship discussions, uh, we forget the ethics, right? We forget the morality, right? Um, uh, um, and uh, the public isn't really understanding 
uh, what's at stake here because it's not being uh, communicated. Um, in 2018, I co-authored a book called Unprecedented Crime, Unprecedented Crime, um, The Denial of uh, Global Climate Change. And there's been a lot more uh, published in the way of articles on, uh, on that climate crime, which is, of course, the continued deception uh, by the fossil fuel industry and um, uh, claiming that, um, oh, they've all joined, um, I think they've all jumped on the bandwagon of the fossil fuel corporations of, um, uh, um, of uh, net zero, right? Because net zero just by itself, I mean, it can mean anything or nothing. It has to be zero combustion, by the way. We cannot, um, the burning age is over. We cannot burn any more fossil fuels. And my God, we're going back to coal again. I was about to say, I mean, Germany is um, burning uh, The IEA, coal. the International Energy Agency, which is, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, it's completely unbelievable. Um, coal remains um, the single biggest uh, fossil fuel source of CO2 emissions. So it's by far the biggest source of CO2 emissions. That's the burning of coal. And it is at an all-time high. And um, the um, IEA and the um, people that follow uh, energy say that uh, coal will stay at an all-time high at least until 2025. So obviously, of course, coal, as everybody knows, is the worst fossil fuel. Uh, but coal is, is, um, uh, coal is a killer. Um, coal kills 10 million people a year. That's the burning of coal. And we don't need to be burning anything. And we cannot be burning anything if we want to have a future. If we want to consider um, our responsibilities and, and, our, and our love, of course, um, to our families, to our children, and to the natural world. Um, uh, life is dying around us before our very eyes, right? We're in the sixth extinction already. And um, uh, fossil fuel emissions, um, and I try to remind myself to talk emissions rather than climate change all the time, because the other problem is people are not connecting these dots, right? Um, uh, why do we have methane feedback? Well, we have it because we're emitting CO2 and methane. Uh, we're burning it in vast, vast amounts. And all our plans are to increase um, the amounts of fossil fuels that we burn. I saw a commander um, uh, um, on, the, uh, on the YouTube um, just the other day. Um, uh, there are very brave reporters and journalists gone into uh, the front there um, to talk with the Ukrainian forces. And they were saying, um, that they think this is going to go on for years. Um, uh, um, uh, what do you call them? Defense uh, writers from the United States say that this war looks like it's going to go on for years. Um, uh, this, if this war carries on, right, it's devastating Ukraine. You know, Ukraine had beautiful towns and cities, absolutely beautiful. And um, uh, they're being... I mean, it's heart-wrenching. They're being brought down to rubble, absolute rubble. I, I, I couldn't believe a city that I saw in the east, which is still being contested in the east of Ukraine, 
There is no city left. It looked just like Hiroshima. You couldn't see anything but rubble and dust and little black spokes pointing out of the ground, which used to be trees. It's absolutely unbelievable um, what's happening. In 2023, in the middle of Europe, and people are talking about winning this war. They're talking about who's going to win. Well, we're losing. Yeah, everything. exactly. What does winning the war mean in this context? I, I think it, the, the different scenarios I can play out are, are really brutal and disconcerting. But you would also hope that this war would present an opportunity for countries to rethink their economies. And I mean, Russia, for example, is so heavily dependent on on gas and it's, you know, the way that it gets gas out of the ground and sells out to different countries you know, now primarily more to China and to India than to uh, Western countries, as we know. Um, but in Western Europe, Germany didn't revert to renewables. They started burning coal, getting LNG from Qatar. I mean, do you think that nuclear energy might be a solution here or is renewables the really the, the way to go? Well, you know, it, it's... We're in a most evil situation, right? Humanity has never been in a um, more dire, risky situation with climate change. That's been said many times now. Um, but with this war as well, and with our governments pouring subsidies into the fossil fuel industry, the IEA reported very recently that 2022 was a record year of, for subsidies by far. The governments gave the fossil fuel industry double the amount of subsidies in 2022 that they gave in 2021. And that's a strategy for planetary destruction and to leave an unlivable future for today's children and young people. And uh, so just like war, that is a greatest of great evils. Terrible despicable you know um uh, it's unbelievable that the governments will be doing this so yeah I, I i take your point and i think it's a good one um if um everybody could see the complete insanity um let alone um, uh, um there's nothing good going to come out of this war all that's going to come out of this war is destruction so if countries could get together and negotiate a peace, and at the same time, this war should be driving them to get off fossil fuel energy much, much, much faster. Uh, they're not getting off fossil fuel energy at all, okay? Um, uh, but also, as you point out, um, drive the industry uh, to more renewable energy. But for that to happen, the people have to force the governments to stop their evil fossil fuel subsidies. That's the absolute necessity. And um, uh, that's unbelievable too, because um, I did do a bit of research on this myself many years ago. And at least since 1990, there have been uh, World Bank, OECD, IEA, um, they have all produced reports that there's no justification for subsidizing fossil fuels 
whatsoever on an economic, environmental, nor a social equity development business uh, basis. Um, uh, they say that they that subsidies are damaging in all three sectors, in all three aspects. So that's why I say um, the war is certainly the sum of all evils, but uh, giving subsidies to the fossil fuel industry um, is the ultimate of all evils. And um, uh, But we require two things. Uh, we require a huge amount of public pressure, political will, right, to stop the war, right, and then to get back and establish a peaceful situation. You know, there's a huge difference between fossil fuels and renewable energy that's been pointed out for many, many years. Um, fossil fuel energy, by its very nature, um, tends to encourage hostility and warfare because people are protecting their very localized but very huge deposits of fossil fuels and trying to, by using war, to steal other people's. Renewable energy is completely different, right? Renewable energy is distributed everywhere, right? Every house can produce renewable energy. So there's no incentive um, uh, to uh, use warfare if you have a renewable energy energized uh, planet and civilization. And this is this has always been a great, great hope of mine and many other people. Um, but it has to start tomorrow. I think what also is important, though, is that this is not the only ongoing conflict. I mean, of course, the the, the war in Ukraine dominates the headlines, um, especially in Europe and in the Western world because of the proximity. But there have been conflicts going on in other parts of the world, in Africa and Asia, uh, for decades, and also the way that private militaries help transnational corporations uh, go about wealth extraction must contribute to climate change. And I feel that we need to be thinking about all these other conflicts that are funded by governments, big corporations, and also private militaries, such as you know the Wagner Group and how they assist in these illegal uh, wealth extraction endeavors. So I think, you know, Hopefully, <laughs> there will be a negotiated settlement at some point, but that's not the only um, battle that's ongoing. I mean, there are all different forms of economic warfare that are going on as as well. So I feel like we need to be thinking about all sorts of different issues and have a more holistic approach as, as opposed to a, a one-issue approach. And that brings me to what our strategy should be because oftentimes you hear politicians say that you know consumers need to decide where they want to put their money they have a certain amount of purchasing power and they can make informed decisions to prevent climate change and i'm not saying that people should you know uh shouldn't become vegetarian or stop flying or or whatever else it might be but to me that almost sounds like they're trying to distract from the real sources of uh, greenhouse gas emissions, which is the fossil fuel industry. So I wonder what you think of that messaging. Well, I, I think you bring up two um, huge important points there. And um, uh, it seems that, there war, that there's war everywhere. I, I agree with you. And um, there's conflict everywhere, um, particularly in the poorest and um, most climate change vulnerable um, nations. Um, because, as you point out, 
um, they're being exploited. And um, the, um, the nations where the worst conflict, of course, still carries on, like you say, um, are the uh, oil, um, the nations that hold oil. Um, some of them um, uh, obscenely wealthy, like Saudi Arabia, but some of them are countries that are poor, uh, but they sit on oil. And I can remember, um, uh, I think it was a military person from the United States in, uh, who made a, a very rotten but telling joke during the Iraq invasion, invasion which was, uh, why are those people sitting on our oil anyway? And um, big, big um, uh, economies um, like the United States, like the EU, like China, and like the Russian Federation, these big economies who are big because they uh, burn a lot of fossil fuels, um, uh, which is um, making the future. Um, every year we're burning fossil fuels. We're making the future worse um, uh, for our um, for our progeny, um, uh, you know, for the future humanity. So um, we have to create a global civilization um, that says no more war. Right. Um, uh, war is uh, our human civilization's greatest vice. And um, uh, we learn this over and over and over. Right. Um, but we're learning it again. And yet we're doing nothing. So we have to have a world free of war. Um, you're, you're so right. Um, it's everywhere. And it's being driven by investment, by big investment, and that's being driven by the big banks, right? So the big banks who are a um, um, uh, see, banks have only one function. That is to make the most money in the fastest time. There's no other consideration whatsoever. So it's not surprising that we look back in history the big banks have always been behind the big wars. So, um, uh, and you, you, you mentioned the economy. The economy, of course, has to uh, transform. Uh, we've known this for decades, and many people have written um, a lot of, of good work about that. Um, uh, it's a uh, destructive um, uh, consumerist economy. And um, yes, we, we, you, you, they're right in a sense. Um, we're all responsible. I mean, I'm responsible, you know, um, uh, but we all have to get together, right? And public has to drive the political will and say that we don't want to have a world which is continually at war. Because when you say there's war everywhere, you're, you're, you're right. That means there's war continuing everywhere. It never stops, never stops. And it's time to beat those plows, um, swords, beat those swords at the plowshares. Um, which is the famous um, uh, peace group uh, based on the biblical quote. I do remember uh, an OCCPP, sorry, OCCPR report on corruption in Afghanistan and how Ashraf Ghani, the uh, former Afghan pre uh, president, his brother was basically involved in some sort of illegal uh, mineral extraction and they were coordinating with uh, this country, this company that was uh, that that had Paul Wolfowitz on 
on their board. I mean, it's just incredible how different private military groups and governments and security firms are kind of all in cahoots and in bed with one another in, in conflict zones for, you know, the purpose of profit. So obviously capitalism here and this lust for never ending profits and uh, wealth accumulation is behind a lot of climate change. Yeah, we, we, we have allowed um, uh, the corporations and capitalism to grow into an, into a global monster, right? Um, uh, um, it was David C. Corton um, who um, wrote the book, um, uh, um, When Corporations Rule the World. And um, they do. And primarily the big banking corporations, the big fossil fuel corporations, the big chemical corporations, but also the big agribusiness corporation. The nation state is inherently a source of problem. Nation states were, the boundaries are all unnatural. The boundaries and the states are all produced by war, every single one of them, even Canada, although it was a tiny war. And um, uh, their, their function, what they see as their uh, sort of main aspect of their economy is, is conflict and war. Ah, and you and I remember you saying now um, uh, that our economy is is like a war, and, and that that that's absolutely right. It's called the competitive economy, a competitiveness of national economies, right? Um, uh, but um, it's it's a hostility, and it breeds hostility and, and fear. Um, so we have to. Um, uh, um, we hear too much and we think far too much about people who we call as leaders, who are leaders in, in warfare and who are leaders in emitting greenhouse gases and continuing the emission, emission of greenhouse gases. One of the things that the 1.5 degrees C 2018 report by the IPC stressed was that we had to have fundamental change on in all sectors of society in order to control the temperature uh, so it doesn't reach 1.5 degrees c that that was a, that was a great paragraph that they wrote there and um uh, we have to change completely there has to be total transformation um conversion is the only way to mitigate climate change. So um, uh, we doing less, like the corporations say, being more efficient, um, like the energy corporations say, it doesn't work for climate change. You have to stop and convert. That's very obvious in the case of fossil fuels, that we have to stop burning all fossil fuels. And EU, you have to stop burning wood on an industrial basis too and stop importing uh, the forests from the United States. That has to stop. Um, uh, they're emitting uh, just as bad as coal, by the way, um, uh, those big so-called biomass sources of energy. Um, uh, and 100% renewable energy that can be simply done by the governments not subsidizing the fossil fuel energy anymore. Um, one would hope, and I can't see any reason why, uh, that can't be turned around in one to two years. But everything else has to be transformed as well. Uh, dietary 
habits have to be transformed. Uh, we do have to go vegan because we cannot afford to emit any more methane. Atmospheric methane has increased far more than any greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. It's now running at 1,925 parts per billion. And that is an increase on the pre-industrial uh, by a factor of 2.6, 2.6 times higher atmospheric methane than when we started with our fossil fuel civilization. Um, uh, and as I say, it is absolutely skyrocketing. It's going ahead. So we cannot put any more methane into the environment. So those that are encouraging a switch to the vegan diet, yeah, all power to you um, uh, because of the cows. Unfortunately, um, there is a, a good trend to veganism, I think, in North America, maybe in Europe. But of course, in the so-called developing countries in Asia, um, they're following our bad examples like they're doing it every other way and uh, eating more and more and more. So uh, everything has transformed our construction. If you go to anywhere in the world, I mean anywhere, you can go to the sort of so-called poorest regions, you will see only one form of construction, steel, concrete, aluminum, and glass. Nothing could be worse. And uh, we have uh, excellent um, alternatives, some publicity being given to them as well. Uh, Multi-story buildings being made with wood, um, uh, with uh, engineered wood that can last hundreds and hundreds of years. Like you can see um, uh, um, buildings, sizable buildings in UK and Europe that have been there for hundreds of years. Um, uh, so, and we have to stop deforestation completely. Um, we're tending to forget uh, the scientific sort of rules that we understood um, 10 or 15, 20 years ago. And one of those rules was stop deforestation. We're not sort of talking in that way now. We're talking about, well, perhaps we can reduce deforestation. You know, perhaps it's going to be better because we've got a more sane and sensible president in Brazil. Um, but the international community has to stop deforestation and they can stop deforestation. So we have to uh, make these uh, conversions. And the biggest conversion, which um, is out of my sort of expertise to make, but the biggest conversion is the uh, ethical, spiritual conversion. And um, Pope uh, Francis, um, uh, who has been uh, quite a champion on climate change, and that's a very fine thing. Um, he he re reiterated, actually, uh, Pope Benedict's um, uh, statement that Benedict made in the United Nations, which is that we need an ecological, spiritual conversion. I thought that was great. And Francis has said it as well. Yeah, we keep setting the bar lower and lower in terms of what we want to achieve. And it's it's pretty sad to see that. Yeah, that's that's totally what we're doing. Yeah, we're allowing the bars to be set lower. That's a very good way of saying it. And my final question to you would be, you know, the role of the global south in terms of uh, mitigating climate change. I think, you know, we're all feeling the effects of climate change in North America, in Europe. This is 
something that's not just affecting poorer countries. We're all feeling it. But in certain instances, poorer countries in the global south are often um, hit harder by climate change. Uh, you know, when it comes to food security, for example, um, we might see more people having to flee their countries and to seek refuge in, in northern countries. So to, to leave different African countries and maybe seek asylum in Europe in, in the upcoming decades. And I think this was a, a recent item that was put on the agenda at COP27, which is loss and damage. This is the first time where they've discussed potentially giving uh, countries in the global south some form of reparations for uh, what they've suffered as a result of climate change. So I just wonder, what is their role and, and can they potentially hold um, the global north to account? Well, they, they certainly tried hard. Um, uh, I, I remember, I, I think it was at Copenhagen that the African delegation got together um, uh, when they were continuing to try and persuade um, the global north nations to drop the two degree C um, uh, limit and make it 1.5 degree C. I, I, I remember they threatened to walk out of that conference and they called what was going on in, uh, to their countries, um, they called it economic genocide. And it most certainly is. We have a situation now, as you know, in the Horn of Africa again, um, millions and millions and millions of people are on the edge of starvation. The UN um, uh, has only been, and this is unusual, has only been given 50% of its requests to uh, prevent famine in the Horn of Africa. Could the war in Europe have something to do with that? I damn well think so. Um, uh, because the countries actually have always given in these situations and um, um, they've always avoided the worst. Uh, but we've seen some horrible starvations um, in Africa. Now, of course, we've always known that Africa is the most vulnerable country to climate change. It's a huge continent, but it's absolutely tragic um, how vulnerable it is to climate change. Um, uh, and, um, you know, it's just a few percentage points, like 3% or something of, of those orders of Africa and all the countries as a rule what they've uh, contrib contributed in the way of emissions. But you mentioned the success of loss and damage at the last COP. I'm afraid it wasn't a success for two reasons. One reason, of course, is they're not following through with it. And uh, governments are very, very good at making fine promises, which they never follow through with. Um, you know, they promised at the Pittsburgh um, uh, um, G20, uh, back in 2009, to stop fossil fuel subsidies. And they're still talking about, we will stop fossil fuel subsidies. The bar goes down uh, uh, by the limit being pushed back. So they say, oh, we'll stop them uh, um, uh, 2025. Loss and damage. Loss and damage is specifically, explicitly in the 1992 Climate Change Convention. It's repeated over and over and over that the Annex One, which were the long uh, industrially developed nations, had agreed and were required to provide all manner of means of assistance to the Annex Two countries. So that goes way back to 1992. So what's happened? Annex One, the industrially developed, wealthy, so-called 
high credit countries have just um, roadblocked and roadblocked and roadblocked and prevented. And now they say suddenly that we've agreed to a loss and damage. Uh, well, no, they haven't because um, in the 1992 convention, the vulnerable countries were listed. They were actually named and listed the countries which the Annex One nations had to assist, technological assistance, uh, damage assistance, that was anticipated in 1992. And um, uh, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid it's not happening. You can look around the world and see it's not happening. Um, uh, these, um, you know, I remember um, uh, um, it was at the um, uh, conference in, in Mexico, the COP in Mexico. There was a uh, lady, um, a human rights person, who was the delegation of Bolivia. And um, she'd not been a delegate in a COP before. And um, halfway through, she said, this isn't the climate conference at all. This is an economic conference. All they're doing is arguing ec economic benefits with each other. Um, uh, so this monster of the economy, which we've allowed to be created, um, uh, we, 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 we have to transform that beast, that's for sure. And we have to look back at the present and the past and the best of humanity. The very best of humanity is, um, uh, it, um, is absolutely wonderful individually culturally in groups um, uh, um, and um, we're looking at the worst because all our news tends to be the, the very the very very worst um, so we have to raise our bar um, as far as we know we can raise it right and we have to develop construct and negotiate um, a peaceful and peaceable world if we don't, we just have no future. We have no future at all. And our poor children have no future um, worth living. As I say, when the IPCC says we have to secure a livable future for them, uh, we have to do it. Um, we, have to, we have to feel the shame, um, in my view, of uh, what kind of world um, we have created and it's a world that's going downhill downhill with the militarism downhill with the uh, competitive um, uh, um, economics which is ruling the world um, another aspect which we should mention because it's so important is that um, the corporations now have managed to relieve themselves of all constraints on their behavior they've done this in my lifetime i've seen it happen and um, when the world became aware of the wto um, many years ago um, we saw one of the greatest um, events in certainly my history uh, we saw we saw the globalization of the human rights movement massive um, uh, um, marches peaceful marches i mean they were massive in major countries all around the world year by year when the WHO was holding these meetings and the people knew um, what the economics of the WTO was all about 
and um, they demonstrated very, very powerfully, powerfully against it. Now, those those um, uh, terrible constraints are still offered because we still have the WTO um, uh, um, so-called free trade agreements in operation. And there are dozens and dozens of dozens of those agreements now. And what they do is um, they have, and the corporations have done this on purpose. This has nothing to do with the world's people at all. Corporations brought the, this in by stealth. It's an artificial, um, uh, quasi-legal um, arrangement um, that they have negotiated between their trade departments, whereby now corporations have the right to sue governments. And they have, and they are. And it's already started in the case of governments who um, are talking about ex um, applying some legislation, right, um, to um, to reduce um, the fossil fuel industry, reduce fossil fuel emissions. And the corporations are saying, no, no, because we have this free trade agreement, you see. And um, if you do that, we will lose future profitability, not just today, in the future. And we're talking tens of billions of dollars that the corporations are suing our governments for. And that is condemning the world to uh, zero future. That's a death sentence for the world when we have fossil fuel corporations and chemical corporations suing our governments to make sure and they're succeeding and it's it's abhorrent it's another another specific evil um preventing our, our countries doing what they're supposed to be doing which is protecting their citizens and ensuring um a reasonable future for the next generation these damn corporations right over the past NAFTA was the first one, of course, to remember, the North American Free Trade Agreement. Now we've got dozens and dozens that are all over the place, and they're still being negotiated. Well, it's not just NAFTA, but also CETA, the Free Trade Agreement between the European Union and Canada. It's been an incredible opportunity for companies to unleash lawsuits against nation states and for them to, you know, basically have a free hand in terms of uh, crushing certain worker standards or um, basically increasing their own profits. So it hasn't really been great for those workers and countries involved. It's the most powerful thing that we've got going on in the world. And it's completely artificial and contrived, right? It's had no legal basis whatsoever. Um, but they have invented a law of economics. Um, uh, so yes, um, uh, and it exerts a chill effect. That's the other big thing, which was anticipated years ago, that governments are afraid now, you know, to exert the legislation or apply the legislation that they've already got, okay, um, uh, with regards to mining, pesticides, chemicals, but also with fossil fuels. Uh, they're afraid to do that because they've seen um, the fossil fuel corporations and other corporations win these cases. They have a contrived, what they call a dispute settlement mechanism. And all that is, is that they hire um, re retired lawyers, civil servants, and they 
they uh, make a panel of them and the panel gets to decide um, uh, on the um, uh, under, not under national laws, not under international laws, but under these phony free trade rules, okay, um, uh, whether the um, corporation will prevail. And the corporations have routinely prevailed, as you probably know. Um, uh, uh, so um, that's another transformation that had to be made, um, something else that has to be kicked uh, out with the, with the corporations. Corporations are so powerful now. I can't believe how in my lifetime I've seen the power of the corporations increase uh, from, from very little, from very little compared to the power of the nation state to now corporations have power over the nation states and the nation states everywhere, United States and Canada, as you mentioned, uh, European countries. Um, uh, and um, it, 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 it's, an, it's an awful, awful thing. And um, I, I hope that there are more people that uh, um, actually write articles about this and get the information out again, because uh, we, we sort of lost what we learned a decade ago. Um, this this is a monstrous, monstrous uh, situation that the corporations have contrived in order to exert power over the people everywhere and power over our democratically elected governments to the extent that they're democratically elected. Yeah, it's like the, the rules are rigged it's, in their favor, horrendous. in favor of corporate, corporate profits. Oh, yeah. The deck is stacked. And um, uh, um, so, um, you know, they sue, they bring a complaint, right, um, against a nation state, against the government. And then they set up these dispute uh, settlement mechanisms and they uh, negotiate and arbitrate. And um, uh, it takes time and normally, oh, this is a very expensive process, by the way. The corporations have sort of unlimited access to credit from the bank when they make these uh, uh, suits, so-called complaints. Uh, the governments don't have unlimited funds in their government pockets uh, to fight these cases. So um, the corporations are killing us, basically, right? The corporations are literally killing us, destroying our future. Um, uh, um, uh, and they pretend, they have the nerve to pretend that the solution to climate change is engineering. Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing all your insights and vast knowledge on this topic. And thank you for watching theanalysis.news. If you're able to donate to our show, please go to theanalysis.news and hit the donate button at the top right corner of the screen and also get on to our newsletter. That way you won't miss any future episodes. Thank you.